So I'm going to be honest with you. This talk was challenging for me to prepare. I had my ladies praying for me. Um, from what I've seen, young women have had a very different experience pursuing chastity than their mothers and grandmothers have had. Um, easy access to pornography is enticing women to engage in sexual immorality and also, I think, shaping how women view themselves uh, and how women view men. And in the past, we used to talk about pornography like it was a men's problem, but that's no longer true, is it? And I hope that this morning, as we look at God's word, we can be encouraged to pursue a chaste lifestyle that is fitting for a woman who has been redeemed and made new and washed clean by the blood of Christ. Um, so to start with, we're going to actually turn to 1 Peter 3, which I know is a familiar passage, but we're actually going to take our time and just take a minute to look at what uh, Peter says about chastity. Um, and so we're just going to take a moment to work through this verse. So we'll turn to 1 Peter 3. And we'll read verses 1 through 6 together. So Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So in verse 2, Peter writes that unbelieving husbands will be won without a word by their wives respectful and pure, or as older English translations say, chaste conduct. So interestingly, in this passage, Peter is arguing for chastity as evangelism. Uh, the word translated respectful uh, is literally the prepositional phrase in fear. And according to one commentator, a literal translation would be as they observe your pure conduct in fear. Now, this fear uh, is directed toward God, uh, not their husband in this case. Um, in 1 Peter, you see this pattern that any time this phrase is used in fear, it is directed to, toward God. So, for example, in 1 Peter 2.18, this same phrase is used where servants are to obey their masters in fear of God. So, Peter writes that a woman should live a pure or chaste lifestyle out of reverence for God. And her godly lifestyle and submission to her husband will speak louder than words to an unbelieving spouse. Now, in the context, Peter's not merely talking about purity as an absence of extramarital sex, although it includes that, but it's more than that. Peter is clear that her conduct is motivated by what's in her heart and by what she believes to be true. So when the Bible describes chastity, it never describes chastity as an end in itself. It's not about creating enough rules to keep you, to keep you from having sex. Uh, chastity is not about dressing in a way that so obscures your femininity that you could never, ever possibly cause a brother to lust. So this is not what chastity is about in scripture. Rather, it refers to a manner of life that seeks to honor God with our body, soul, and mind. For Peter, a woman's chastity is about her relationship with God. And this is a key point that I want you guys to absorb as we talk about this today. A woman's chastity is about her relationship with God. 
So Peter goes on in verses 3 and 4 to talk about modesty. Um, And notice that, again, he makes this connection between her relationship with God and how she presents herself in public. So verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says that a woman's greatest beauty is her transformed character. A holy woman is beautiful, period, in God's eyes, and I think Peter is saying in the eyes of any sensible man. Specifically, Peter says that a gentle and quiet spirit is beautiful in verse 4. Now, you might be thinking, there's nothing gentle and quiet about my spirit. You know, Marion's the rebel grandma. Like, you know, you, you guys, <laughs> you might like to tell stories and laugh out loud or jump out of airplanes for fun. Um, so that's okay. Peter's not saying that you have to make yourself timid or introverted. Uh, That's something different. You can be a daring extrovert and still have what God calls a gentle and quiet spirit. Rather, this verse is describing a woman whose heart safely trusts in God. Verse 5 describes a holy woman as someone who hopes in God. Peter points to Sarah as an example And then in verse 6, he says something remarkable. He says, we are her children if we do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So this holy woman he's describing, she is at peace. She knows that God sees her and values her, and she trusts him to take care of her when her life feels unstable. So a modest woman, a chaste woman, she is not anxious defensive or out to prove herself she doesn't crave people's approval and her clothing and demeanor reflect a serene heart a heart that confidently trusts in the sovereignty and goodness of God she has hope for her future now this verse is not saying to avoid gold or braids any more than it's saying to avoid clothing just to be clear But Peter seems to be encouraging women to avoid a general showiness. She should not flaunt her wealth, status, style, or sexuality in order to bring attention to herself. Instead, her confidence in God adorns her. Her gentle and quiet spirit leaves a stronger impression than her appearance. So modesty is a matter of the heart expressed in clothing, demeanor, conversations. It's an outward expression of who you are. So when we become Christians, the gospel changes us, doesn't it? It confronts this attention-getting self-focus of our natural self that we're all prone to. It's like our eyes are opened and we're disillusioned with our own greatness and find more enjoyment in God's holiness and beauty. He's the one worthy of attention, not us. Now, by contrast, thinking of the world that we live in, our culture glorifies women who have a hot body, right? Uh, Hot women are worthy of more praise and attention than those who are not. And understandably, this causes all sorts of insecurities in women. Uh, We may wonder whether we're attractive enough to get a man or to keep a man, or even at a more basic level, am I attractive enough to matter? But Christianity offers a better alternative to women, an identity apart from hotness. Christians, a Christian woman, she belongs to Christ, and the world does not get to decide her worth. Christ has already given us an identity and a purpose. Um, When I think of this worldly mindset, um, this hierarchy of hotness, if you will, um, it reminds me a bit of a hamster on a wheel. 
in order to prove your worth, you constantly have to be running, running, running on this wheel and you can never get off and you never get anywhere. And if you get off the hamster wheel, you become nothing. You have to get back on the hamster wheel and keep proving your worth. You've got the world over here saying, yeah, get back on the hamster wheel, impress us, show us you're worth something. And then you have God saying, no, a gentle and quiet spirit is precious in my sight. A woman who trusts the Lord is precious. First Peter 3 shows us that a godly woman doesn't have to live on a hamster wheel. God's opinion of us is the only one that matters, and we can trust him with our future. If you're a Christian here this morning, you don't belong to the world anymore. You belong to Christ, and your clothing, conversations, and demeanor should reflect his gracious saving work in your life. So your chaste conduct and this contented, quiet spirit testify to the world that you hope in God. And you feel secure in his sovereign and loving hands. So chastity is a matter of the heart. And it's about your relationship with God. So it's this outward demonstration of who you are and what you believe. Now, I'm guessing that most people here do agree that chastity is a good thing. It's a good thing to pursue. It's something that God wants for us. Um, But I would like to take some time to talk about strategies for fighting sin uh, because I'm guessing that some of you here may struggle with recurring sexual sin. And others of you want to help your friends who are stuck in habitual sin. Perhaps even today, after we have this talk, a Christian sister will reach out to you and say, look, I need help. Can you pray for me? So whether you're fighting your own sexual sin or you're helping a sister, I hope that these strategies can be helpful for you. So first, uh, my first strategy is discover your desires. Now, if you have your Bible, turn over to James 1. James 1, and we're going to look at verses 13 to 14. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, and this is talking about our desires. So James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James is saying that it's not something out there that causes us to sin. It's our own desires. And he uses the imagery of giving birth to a death baby to show the seriousness of entertaining sinful desires. So... Secret sexual fantasies are not innocuous. They give birth to sin, and sin brings forth death. So looking at someone with lustful intent, um, I don't know if you guys have ever had this experience, but I know probably more so in my younger days. I remember friends, you know, you'd watch the male athletes and have your giggle, and, you know, I distinctly remember a friend saying, you can look, but don't touch, like as if that's a biblical proverb. <laughs> she was a Christian. And I was like, you know, actually there's no proverb that says that. Jesus says if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And certainly that applies to women too. Um, so fantasizing about someone that's not your husband is not harmless. Uh, reading an erotic novel is not harmless. Watching porn is not harmless. Um, You are giving birth to a death baby. You are setting your feet on the pathway that leads to death. The atmosphere that we live in, we mentioned the culture earlier, it really does promote sexual immorality. And I think as women, we need to be wise about this. We need to be wise about the atmosphere that we are constantly breathing in, um, from social media to movies to even political leaders promote certain kinds of sexual immorality. 
Um, and this atmosphere is full of deceptions. And as we know, where do these deceptions come from? Well, John 8.44 tells us that the devil is a liar and the father of lies. So when we justify our sin, it is often the devil's lies that come to our mind and encourage us to sin. So things like, you're not hurting anyone. You can stop anytime you want. Or, now that I've started, I might as well keep sinning. It's too late anyway. Or, it's not a big deal. Or, it's not sin unless I act on my desire. Eve, when she desired the forbidden fruit, she listened to the serpent's lie. She said, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Genesis 3, 4 to 5. But James says, don't be deceived. Understand the battle that is going on inside of you. So you'll find Satan's lies helpful if you want to sin, but you don't have to believe them and you don't have to sin. Some of us are not very self-aware. We actually don't know what's happening inside of us. Um, If it's our desires that are causing us to sin, um, let me ask you, what do you desire most? Would you know? Or to put the question a different, different way, what would you be devastated to lose? Sometimes that's a helpful question. Security, control, comfort, a romantic relationship, good health, people's good opinion of you, some options. So our desires and our fears are really driving the trajectory of our lives. They compel us to choose one thing and not another. They give birth to sin leading to death or righteousness that leads to eternal life. Uh, James says in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. So these desires, they are really what's driving us uh, to make the decisions that we're making. So if you're struggling with sexual sin here today, Ask yourself, what do you want? What are you craving? We sin because we desire something. And if we're having trouble changing, sometimes it's helpful to ask ourselves if we really want to change. When we love something as much as or more than God, it's appropriate to call it an idol. It's a competing God in our hearts. It might not have a physical shape, but essentially we're bowing down before it. We're allowing this craving to control us even as it harms us. And I think this is the really confusing part about sexual sin is that it feels pleasurable even as it actively hurts us, hurts our loved ones, and leads to death. But you can't have both God and your sin. There's no category in the Bible for a Christian who habitually sins. You have to choose. Do you love God or do you love your sin? And sometimes it's not that we actually love our sin so much. It's that we crave relief from bad feelings, stress, or uncomfortable situations. Um, So the reason that we go to our favorite vice when we're struggling is because it distracts us and it makes us feel better temporarily. But this is a false refuge. It can never actually save us or change us or help us. It may feel that it's helping us to cope, and this is why Satan's called the father of lies. He's very good at it. Because at the very moment we think our sin is helping us, Satan is actually enslaving us, derailing us, crippling us, and dehumanizing us. He is warping the very image of God in us. So the first strategy to fight sexual sin is to discover what desires are driving you. Acknowledge which of Satan's lies you're using to justify your sin. And if you're giving into sin habitually and you don't understand yourself, just one practical recommendation that I have is to journal. 
write down your feelings. Try to understand yourself. So what are you feeling when you're most tempted to sin? What's happening in your environment? What do you desire? What are you afraid of? How are you responding to difficult circumstances? You know, when are you most weak and tempted? So really start writing things down and you might see a pattern emerging over time. James says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So often when a Christian is falling into recurring sin, they can't explain why. They don't understand themselves. Um, So it can be really helpful to look back and read over your own journaling notes. So, for example, if you know you're most vulnerable to temptation when you are home alone, when you are exhausted, when you are lonely, when you have a tablet in your bedroom, when you hang out with certain friends that stir up these ungodly cravings in you, If you understand when and why you crave sin, then you can be a little more proactive in these situations. So it's not enough to just say, oh, I hope I have enough willpower next time I'm tempted, right? We want to try and be a little bit more proactive here. Um, I remember uh, a sermon illustration that Clint used years ago. I can't even remember the passage, but it was something that, you know, if there's sin going on in a house that you're particularly tempted toward, Um, and you crave something that's happening in that house, you don't go near it, right? You don't even go to the neighborhood. You don't knock on the door. You don't hang out with friends that are talking about what's going on in that house. You just, you avoid it. Um, Other Christians might have more liberty to go, you know, cruise around in that neighborhood and, and drive on by, but if you're particularly weak in that situation, don't go there. Don't go near the neighborhood. Don't talk about it. Don't think about it. Avoid that weak place. Um, So the first strategy to fight sin is to discover your desires and understand why you're acting the way that you're acting and why you're choosing the things that you're choosing. Second strategy, deal with God. So very often a reason we can't overcome our sin and temptation is because we haven't learned how to bring our emotions and circumstances to the one true refuge for help. So understanding your desires isn't enough in and of itself. We need to learn the habit of authentic in-the-moment prayer. Um, So those of you who are parents know what it's like to have a child who's struggling with something but they don't come to you for help. Or if you're not a parent, you likely have people you are mentoring that you care about. Um, It's the same thing. They don't come to you. They're maybe embarrassed or they don't want to get in trouble or they don't want you to think badly of them. And meanwhile, you're thinking, I already know you're a sinner, so am I. You know, but I have the resources, the wisdom, the influence, the agency to actually help you get out of this unhealthy situation you're in. But they don't come to you. Well, in the same way, God wants us to come to him for help. He doesn't want us to flounder around for 10 months trying to get our act together before we repent and seek his help. As parents and mentors, we know that there are some things we can't fix because we're limited. But God isn't like us. He is not limited. There isn't anything that he can't ultimately fix, and yet we procrastinate or we pray these weird polite prayers that completely hide all of our real feelings from God as if he doesn't already know what we're thinking and feeling and tempted by but God knows right he knows he's there with us you can talk to him about it God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble Psalm 46 1 so when we're acting on sinful desires God seems very distant But if you're a Christian, God is, in fact, very present. When you are actively sinning, he surrounds you. He indwells you. Psalm 139.5 says, You hem me in before and behind and lay your hand on me. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness as as light to you. 
his light with you. Sorry. So there's no hiding from God when we sin. He's right there. And for the Christian, this is an incentive to go immediately to him and to repent and to seek help. There's no reason to wait or get your act together before you go to God. God already sees what you are doing. And God wants his children to come to him. You know, we're actually commanded to pray without ceasing. And unlike us, God has unlimited resources and wisdom and power to actually help us. So don't let shame keep you from coming to God. Instead, let it drive you to God. You know, sometimes we're too weak to pray. You know, we can maybe pray a one-word help kind of prayer. And that's okay as long as we are going to God. I love Come Ye Sinners that we sang earlier. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. And there's a verse in the older version that says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. So you don't have to get good enough to come to God. What's required of you? that you know that you need him. God knows we are weak. He knows our frame. The truly remarkable thing about our God is that he doesn't expect us to work our way up to him. He comes down to us. Christ dealt with our sin on the cross, and we're called to respond in faith and to simply trust him that Christ's finished work on the cross has dealt with our sin. And when it comes to sanctification or growing in holiness, like we're talking about today, God doesn't leave Christians on their own to flounder. He doesn't help those who help themselves, right? That's not a proverb either. (laughs) Um, He just helps us, period. Uh, Romans 8, uh, 8, verse 26, uh, Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You know, and we may wonder when we're praying these weak prayers, does prayer really change anything? It may feel like nothing's happening when we pray because we're fumbling around and it doesn't feel like anything magical is happening. But the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. He himself intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. Paul prayed that the Ephesian church would know, quote, the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's Ephesians 1, 19 to 20. So how powerful is God? Well, he's power, powerful enough to raise Christ from the dead. And that same power is at work in, is toward us who believe, Ephesians says. So God's mighty power is at work in his church. So you can start to see that there's not really any sense in like trying to get your life together on your own strength and then go to God. We just need to go directly to God. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So we have discover your desires, deal with God. The third thing, tell a friend. So this is challenging, but often when we're feeling stuck in sin, we retreat from Christians out of shame. But the church is actually a tremendous help for spiritually sick Christians. James uh, chapter 5 verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So when a Christian prays for us, it has great power. And this is not because the friend is some super powerful being. It is because the God who answers prayers is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to his mighty power at work in us. Ephesians 3.20. So don't let shame hold you back from reaching out for help today. Find a trusted friend 
or mentor to confess your sin to and have them pray for you. When you've fallen into sin, you might feel like retreating from the church, but that's actually the opposite of what you need. You need to press into the life of the church. So rub shoulders with healthy Christians. Worship God with them on Sunday morning. Engage in spiritual conversations. Say yes to any opportunities for spiritual encouragement. Just being with God's people is healing for spiritually sick Christians. There's a passage in Hebrews 12, uh, verse 12, where um, the author writes to the church as a whole, corporately. He says, Lift up drooping hands, strengthen weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame, so an unhealthy church member, may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. So being with God's people is healing and corrective for spiritual lameness. It helps bring us back into healthy alignment. So as the church corporately strengthens weak knees and makes straight path for their feet, the spiritually unhealthy Christian is actually strengthened along with them. So don't avoid your church. Talk to a friend, engage. Number four, get a new vision for your life. So when we choose to stop sinning, it's not just about eliminating something harmful from your life. (coughs) It is that, but it's more than that. It's choosing something better. It's choosing Christ. And it's choosing to be part of, to be a healthy, useful, and God-honoring member of the body of Christ. Ephesians 2.10, for we are, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So sometimes, especially with sexual sin, if it's secret, if it's only in our mind, um, we imagine that we're the only people affected by it. We're not hurting anyone. And while we might be the most affected by our sin, it's short-sighted to think that the consequences would reach no further than yourself. God's prepared the church corporately for good works, and when individual members are spiritually unhealthy, the whole church suffers. We need our hands to be functioning. We need our eyes healthy. We need our kneecaps whole. We need everyone. Every member has a purpose. So if you're a believer, you are an essential member of the body of Christ. If a hip is lame and goes out of joint, the whole body will be affected in some way. So if you habitually are choosing sin, you're simultaneously saying no to the purposes that God has for you in the body of Christ. I have um, one son, who I won't name, who is not competitive at all. And sometimes I'm like, well, maybe just be a little competitive. Um, but he was playing baseball when he was little. And uh, we, we, took, we got him a little course and, or a little workshop to learn the basics. And first, first game, he did pretty good. Um, but then a remarkable thing happened with each next game. He got, like, worse and worse. It was like he was unlearning the game of baseball as the year went on. But his thing was, he's just in an imaginary world. He's just clueless to what's going on around him. And, you know, it never crossed his mind that maybe, like, being an active participant of the team would be, like, fun, be part of the big win. Never crossed his mind that maybe it affects his team negatively if he's, uh, you know, zoning out. Um, In the same way, I think when we make this argument that we're not hurting anyone with our secret sexual sin, although I don't think that's true, but at the very least, you are not helping the body of Christ. And you have no idea what God could do in and through you should you choose to devote your life to him. Um, And I think sometimes people get so fixated on how things are now that they can't imagine how things could be. Even Christians sometimes hold on to their less than virtuous ways of thinking and interacting with people. They just kind of throw up their hands and say, that's the way I am. But a Christian should never be stagnant. 
if we have, so for example, if we have a pattern of hurting people with our words, uh, we don't just say, eh, that's the way I am. I have a brisk personality. You know, I don't do feelings, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, or, you know, we don't say, I don't try hard things. I have a timid personality. That's just the way I am. Um, we were listening to an audio book in one of our family road trips, and it was this uh, Scott Adams, the Delbert comic author. And I can't even remember what it was about, but there was a part about saying no to people. And he said, no, what you do, you don't explain and you don't make excuses. You just say, I don't do that. <clears throat> and <laughs> my kids had a lot of fun with this because, you know, after dinner, I'd be like, okay, time to clean up. Sorry, Mom, I don't do dishes. <laughs> I was like, okay, we're, we're stopping this. Uh, now, there may be some situations where this approach is helpful, but for the most part, this is not a helpful way for Christians to respond to things. As Christians, we can sometimes make assessments about ourselves with finality, as if how we are now is how we will always be. You know, I'm not courageous, I'm not good with people, I don't deal well with stress, or I can't cope without my favorite vice. But if you're a Christian here this morning, this isn't true of you. Christians are always changing as the Spirit conforms us to the image of his Son. Romans 8.29, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And it's important that you don't label yourself with your sin. You may have struggled um, with sexual sin frequently even in the past, but you are not your sin. And how you are now is not how you will always be. Christians are constantly moving and changing and becoming more like Christ. And sometimes with sexual sin in particular, people carry around a lot of baggage. It's like a burden of weight. Um, it may seem more grotesque to them, so they let it kind of wrap around them and be their unique burden to bear. But whatever the sexual sin of your past, Jesus has the power to cleanse you whiter than the snow. He has made us a new creation and he has purposes for you. So it's important not to label yourself with your sin. Instead, we need to get a new vision for our lives. What does God have for you? You know, start to have a little creative imagination. Like, if I wasn't constantly enslaved to this craving, this sin, what could my life look like? What could your life look like? So God has purposes for you. So those are my four strategies. They're on the outline that oh, by no means comprehensive, but maybe a starting place for you. Um, and just at the end here, I want to make some applications about modesty, maybe just a little more concrete. Um, and then I will open it up for a few questions. So I was trying to just think through what, what the questions might be. Um, and usually there's lots of questions about modesty. What is modest? What isn't? So I just want to reiterate from the start that modesty is about more than clothing. A modest woman fears the Lord, and her contented spirit is expressed outwardly in her clothing, conversations, and demeanor. Now, chaste women will look very different from one another, depending on their culture, the context, and their personality. So, for example, some, some just cultures are more bright, more loud, and others are more subdued. Neither one is morally superior. Rather, it's a question of cultural preference. Uh, some personalities are more artistic. So an artistic woman may delight in creating beauty and order. She may delight in color, texture, design. Other women are more practical and functional in their choices. And that's okay. God made diverse personalities. So maybe perhaps if you're the artistic type, you might want to assess if your choices have become too over the top at times for the context that you're in. But <coughs> perhaps if you're the functional type, 
you might want to consider adding some color and joy to your wardrobe to reflect that God has given us beauty for ashes and joy instead of mourning, Isaiah 63.1. But neither a practical bend or an um, artistic bend is uh, right or wrong, and both can express a quiet, chaste spirit that Peter wrote about. Another consideration is the context. Context dictates what is modest. And I know people don't like that because you think, you know, well, we shouldn't be judging by what the world's doing to, to decide what we wear. But practically speaking, context does dictate modesty. Um, what is modest at a beach is not what's modest at a restaurant. What is modest at a gym is not what's modest at church. <laughs> Personally, I don't find a list of rules very helpful. Move my tea. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't find a list of rules helpful when deciding what to wear. I think if a woman's heart is in the right place, the rest just generally falls into place. But I've given you some diagnostic questions on your handout, so sometimes it's helpful to ask some questions just to assess where your heart is at. Questions like, does what I'm wearing communicate that I am a woman? I mean, that's not obvious. Does it communicate that I am a woman who is redeemed and loved by God? Is there any disjunction between who I am and how I'm presenting myself? So would other people be confused that you're calling yourself a Christian? Who does it look like I'm identifying with? So certain groups and ideologies have a very distinctive look, right? Um, so kind of a more lesbian feminist ideology has a very distinctive look. Goth culture has a very distinctive look. Uh, the hypersexualized porn culture has a very distinctive look. So who does it look like I'm identifying with? At a basic level, am I dressing to attract sexual interest or to show off my wealth? Ultimately, does what I'm wearing glorify God? You know, it's just a good basic question. So being modest doesn't mean that you are trying to hide your feminine shape or be androgynous in your appearance. If God has blessed you with physical beauty, you don't have to disguise your beauty, tone it down. You don't have to dress like you belong to a century gone by. But we are seeking to honor God with our appearance. Femininity, beauty, and modesty are all God's ideas. Women don't need to hide or be ashamed of their bodies. But our clothing conversations and demeanor should not be about drawing attention to yourself. Unless you're a bride, then you get a pass. And in fact, it is a good thing for the bride to be glorious. A godly woman is oriented toward God. Her heart's desire is to glorify him in everything that she does. So when we begin to comprehend how much we are loved and accepted by God, we won't crave the attention of other people to the same degree or severity. God defines our worth not people. And this gives us greater freedom and enjoyment in life. <coughs> Excuse me, I got a little tickle in my throat. Okay, what about our responsibility toward men, right? This one always comes up. I'm sure it would come up in the Q&A, so I'll just deal with it. <coughs> Generally, I don't like when this one is too overemphasized. I think it creates a culture of suspicion and legalism among the women. Stopping lust cannot be the number one driving motivation for modesty. It places, I believe, an unfair burden on women to save men from their sins. Um, even in Muslim countries where women wear burqas, men still lust. Only Jesus can save men from their sins and give them a new heart with new desires. Having said that, I do think that women who dress modestly make it easier for men to see their personhood rather than their parts. And although we're not responsible for men's lust, I think it makes sense that we dress in a way that communicates that we'd like to be treated as a person um, with the family affection of siblings. In 1 Timothy 5, 
Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Um, and this is God's plan for how the church should relate to each other. Um, so, you know, this is a little bit of common sense. If you want to be treated as a person, as a sister, um, if you want to contribute to this family dynamic, dress accordingly. Oh, and I know it's going to come up, so I'm just going to talk about yoga pants for a minute. <laughs> Infamous yoga pants. <laughs> Oh, there's such a trend to wear active wear to do everything, isn't it? And yoga pants are comfy. Do you guys, there's that thing that comes up on Facebook seasonally where it's like making fun of women that wear active wear to do nothing. It's like, active wear, active wear, doing absolutely nothing in my active wear. <laughs> Makes me laugh every time. I just, uh, yeah, they're comfy. Uh, so I'm not going to give a definitive answer about whether they're modest or not. Um, I don't think it's helpful. <clears throat> and there are different ways to wear stretchy pants. If you wear stretchy pants with a sweater, it's different than if you wear stretchy pants with a sports bra. Um, and as we mentioned, context matters. So use common sense. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> um, but modesty speaks. Um, and what I want to impress on you this morning is that what we wear communicates something about us. It tells people without words what we believe, and who we identify with. So we want to be clear that we don't identify with the dehumanizing porn culture or an anti-femininity feminist culture or anything else that distorts uh, who God has made us to be. And when we consider all of these things, each of us will look a little different from each other, and that's okay. Modesty is a matter of the heart, first and foremost, and it'll express itself in diverse ways. Uh, the last thing I just want to touch on with modesty is when to confront. So I know, you know, you may be thinking, well, I've got this sister and she's always dressing immodestly and what do, you know, do I got to confront her, you know, in her sin and how do I do this? Well, I just like to give a caution here. Beware of adding legalism to legalism. So immodest women are already living by a legalistic code. They're trying to earn approval through the hotness of their body, right? The hotness hierarchy. So if you layer on another rule, but don't be so hot that you cause men to lust, it's exhausting for her. She's already obsessing over what people think of her body, and now we've just given her another reason to think that people are judging her appearance. So sometimes, Direct confrontation is needed, but we have to be thoughtful about what we're saying. Uh, when a Christian woman is conducting herself in an immodest way, she's showing that there's something dysfunctional going on in her heart. She doesn't have the quiet spirit that Peter wrote about. And while it may be necessary to, you know, bluntly say, and if you're close to someone, sometimes you can be like, yeah, that shirt's too low, like, go change it. You know, it doesn't have to be a big deal. Um, sometimes you can bluntly say something, but I do think more often than not, she would probably be helped by an older woman coming alongside her and building up her faith. And it requires patience and grace. And when a woman's heart is reoriented toward God and his glory, these issues tend to take care of themselves. So just to close, I do want to encourage you, if you are sinning habitually and in a repetitive way, Get help today. Christians aren't meant to be in a perpetual struggle with sin. God has something better for you. And I want you to leave today with hope because genuine Christians have every reason in the world to hope and believe that by God's grace they can change. I'm just going to pray and then I will open it up to some questions. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you've been with us for this difficult discussion and we've made it through. And Lord, I just pray that it would be a starting place for more conversations and for more heart work as we long to and seek to grow in holiness and to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we look to you for help 
You know our weakness, you know our frame, and yet you are a very present help in trouble. And so we look to you even this morning um, and ask you to do a work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. And I'll say, too, just in terms of book recommendations, Purity is Possible, How to Live Free of the Fantasy Trap by Helen Thorne. Fantasy is a thing for you. That might be a helpful resource. If you are or have been really habitually stuck in pornography, Beggar's Daughter by Jessica Harris, is she tells her story of being redeemed out of that. It's somewhat explicit, so like if you're not struggling with it, don't don't read it. Like why put thoughts in your head? But if if you feel alone in it and you just want someone to walk alongside with you, that could be a good resource. We have all sorts of CCEF resources upstairs. This one, Sexual Addiction, Freedom from Compulsive Behavior. There's lots of little booklets upstairs. Other ones, feel free to grab. And they're just short. Um, And actually, the book giveaway today is probably one of my favorite, favorite books. uh, What's it called, Angie? You Can Change by Tim Chester. And what's the subtitle? Something about overcoming something negative emotion. It's a really good one. I highly recommend that one. Okay, any questions? <laughs> yes. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll put them back by the book draw. And then you can take a look. Yes. Oh, that's an interesting question. I guess, uh, okay, so if you are growing a business on social media, how do you post in a way that is modest on social media while growing your business? Um, so, um, So in terms of like dressing immodestly in order to get clicks, there's probably a better way to do that. Probably don't need to. You know, it, and we didn't talk about social media, but, you know, that is a real thing with young people posting thirst traps. <laughs> I know. So men thirst after you. Even the nice girls do it. I don't know. It's a thing. Um, it's a thing, yeah. And so, you know, I think we post holistic pictures that are beautiful in, and, and represent who we are. Um, in terms of just, like, The nature of social media is you are trying to get clicks, likes, comments. Um, So I think there's ways to do that. That's just like, I'm just trying to let people know. I'm trying to get word out there. It's not about me and everybody like liking me. So I think there is a difference even in your, um, what modesty is a matter of the heart. You know, so if your heart before God is, Lord, help me to grow this business in a way that honors you, um, not to, and I think it can depend on what the business is too, right? Like some businesses, it's maybe harder to, if it's a fitness business or a clothing line, you know, like it does, there's, there's lots of dynamics that require wisdom. And I think sometimes having like a girlfriend, like, hey, if you're not sure, ask someone, can you look at this and just give me some feedback, suggestions? Um, but it's totally valid to... By being modest, it doesn't mean you have to disappear. You know, it's totally valid to grow a business on social media, to put word out there, to have your product seen, to try different tips and tricks to, like, you know, get it to have a further reach. Um, I don't think that's immodest by nature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've seen anybody in this church do it, but can you address what I call the hex after? The Hague factor. Okay, I feel like I'm going to get myself into trouble here. 
<laughs> I think it's like a lot of things where what's in that person's heart matters. So there's a reason that somebody is dressing, trying to disguise beauty or trying to disguise femininity. So I think depending on that person, that would change how I would respond to that person. Has that person been through something sort of traumatic and they're just not coping well with life? Well, I would respond very differently to that person than I would to another person who is like just doing it out of rebellion. Like, I don't care that God made me a woman. I don't care that God is a God of beauty and order. Um, kind of like a stick it to the man kind of attitude that is maybe creating a hag factor. So um, I think sometimes modesty has been misunderstood to mean try and make yourself disappear or try and make yourself as ugly as possible so that no man could ever possibly lust after you, which again is just putting too much on women. You know, we're not responsible to save men from their sins and we can't. We can't. Um, I think there's, there's considerations. Uh, we want to be kind to our brothers. Like I said, we want to make it easy for them to see our personhood. But um, I think it honors God when we have some order. Like he, I mean, he's ordered his creation, right? There's beauty and order. And I think we reflect him when we somewhat organize our, our appearance. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I would just want to know if there's other factors like trauma or like someone's just had a baby and they're barely getting out of bed and they're covered in breast milk. I mean, like, you know, <laughs> spit up in the hair. So I think it really depends on, on the reason um, someone is dressing that way. <laughs> yes. Hmm. Is it appropriate to address a non-Christian woman? I would say it depends why you want to. Um, so if it's just that you're like bothered by her because you think that, oh, she's turning my husband's eye or you're jealous or comparing or um, that sort of thing, I would say no. Um, if you want to come alongside her and hey, be like, you know what? God values you. You don't have to do all of this. You don't have to be like consumed by men or prove yourself or, you know, you don't need people's approval. Like maybe it's an evangelistic opportunity to be like, you know, here's an alternative for women where they're valued just by being created in the image of God. Um, so there may be a reason to do it that's actually like, yeah, evangelistic and wanting them to know freedom from that hamster wheel of trying to constantly um, prove that you're worth something to someone. So it depends. Yes? If you're wanting to invite an unbelieving woman to church who is immodest, would you worry about how she dresses? In church, we do love immodesty. Yeah. Is that something you would ask? Can you wear <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's an interesting question. So if you're inviting a non-Christian to church, I don't know if everyone heard that, who dresses very immodestly, would you ask her to wear something modest? Uh, I guess it depends on the relationship you have with her. My tendency is to say no. Don't ask her. Uh, because... Um, she will see when she gets here. And, you know, that, that women here hopefully are showing this gentle and quiet spirit that is, there's freedom in. And there's some sort of nice family dynamic that's not hypersexualized and everybody's not, like, comparing. Hopefully, right? Like, if the church is healthy, she'll be able to come and just be part of that and see that. And, and I think that's a powerful testimony. Um, so I think my tendency would, would, would be no. And I think all of us need a little bit more patience and grace with people, even when they're new Christians. And they're learning. You know, I think sometimes you've got to take the longer path, not the quick. Again, I think that comes out of the culture of suspicion and comparison among women, where we're too quick to, like, you know.
so you Oh, are you cold? Okay, <laughs> Jen. <laughs> Right. They're not dressed well either. So my recommendation is I would actually just say, uh, just so you know, we kind of have like a casual tip. Some people wear dresses to church. So I just want you to know what people are wearing ahead of time just so that you don't feel uncomfortable if you're not wearing what other people are wearing kind of deal. That, that's how I would approach it. So you're not really actually giving any definition to what she is wearing now. You're just saying for the future, like if you want to come, this is, like you could get away with jeans and a t-shirt, it's totally fine. And you just dumb it down a little bit where it's not like you're prescriptive in your attire, but you're just saying, you know, you could do this if you wanted to, kind of deal. So then it's it's not like you're setting, because the first thing I thought of is, what if that person comes to church and they feel absolutely embarrassed yeah. and ashamed, and you've put them in that position not thinking ahead of time that I'm going to do this to you by not telling you anything at all. You'd rather just tell them. Like, there are people that are going to be dressed in a certain way, and so you feel comfortable. This is what you could potentially wear. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, Sancha, I think you had... I was, I was just going to say, I find that if you're inviting somebody new to church, oftentimes they might say, what should I wear? Yeah. So that would be an easy place to either just show that freedom, like Chris is talking, like that long view, and just kind of, you're coming however you're comfortable, versus this is what you might expect, and then just use wisdom in that, but oftentimes I think people are curious, like, oh, I've never been to church, what should I wear, is it like, is it fancy or not fancy, so that you might actually have it open rather than trying to, trying to tell her what to wear without actually being asked. That's good. Catherine? What if me and my Christian sister come to different convictions about what is modest and what is not modest? Like, say, um, her definition of modest is more restrictive than mine. How should we confront that? Yeah, okay. I don't know if everybody heard that, but, and maybe we'll end with this question. Um, so Catherine was just asking, like, what if a Christian sister and I come to different conclusions about what's modest? Good question. Um, I think you just come to different conclusions about what's modest <laughs> and love each other across differences. Um, yeah. So then with that whole encounter of like weaker brother, you know, mm. in terms of like approach to alcohol, not everybody has the same mm-hmm. perspective, but out of love for the weaker brother, you may choose to refrain. Mm. Yeah, I think more often when there is a difference, it is because the woman who is, well, that's not necessarily true. I was going to say the woman who is more immodest is, you know, in, in a weaker situation. Um, but sometimes women can almost be immodest in their modesty. Like, you know, take a lot of pride in like, I don't dress like anyone in this world. Like, it's almost showy how different you are, like how conservative you are. Um, so I just think it really depends um, I think Christians will look different and they will have disagreements. You know, one woman might feel like a bikini's totally fine at the beach if everyone's wearing a bikini. Another woman might think, hmm, I'd like to wear one piece or I'd like to wear some little shorts. That feels appropriate to me. I don't want everyone staring at whatever, you know. Um, so I think, I think we just need grace to, for each other and there will be differences. Um, it's more if we're noticing in our sister that there is something dysfunctional going on in her heart, that there's not a gentle and quiet spirit, that she's craving people's approval, that she's insecure, that she's kind of drawing attention to herself. Those are the signs that I think are much more worrisome in terms of like, there's something dysfunctional going on in her heart. She needs help. Um, and that's okay. One more. I, I did have that in, in with one of my friends who is an alcoholic. Did never want to acknowledge that she was. She looked at people in church and she asked, "When do you arrive?" Right? Like because she, nobody invited her to be part of the ministry. 
I started to just specifically pray for that, and it's not my prayers, it's God answering that prayer. Specifically, in the middle of the night, she called me that she was dumping all her alcohol. Mm. And I just praise the Lord for that because from there on, she started to grow. But I think as Christian sisters, the power of prayer, when you see someone struggling, it's not always up to us to be that person to start talking to that person. But if you see someone struggling, you start praying for that person. And that's mm. our call for yeah. all of us. Yeah, if we're not sure what the right thing to do is, prayer is the very best place to start. Okay, thank you guys. We're, we're done. You can come talk to me after if you want. I just want, it's quarter to one, so I want to release people. If you need to get home and make your family lunch. I will put those books in the, the table in the back there. Um, so if you want to take a look at them, you can. And yeah, hope you have a nice day. Thanks for coming out. Is there anything else, Pam? Or, no, okay, you're dismissed. Okay, thanks, guys.